Church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24, you'll find that on page 16 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can just grab that black Bible right there in front of you, take that home. That could be your very own. We'd love for you to be able to do that. Of course, today is Mother's Day, as you heard, so let me uh, add my voice uh, to all the mothers. Happy Mother's Day. We so appreciate you. Can we appreciate the mothers uh, this morning? Is that be all right? I asked Allegra what she wanted for Mother's Day, and she said, a really long sermon. So, um, (laughs) you'll have to blame her. Um, We are, of course, in, uh, well, maybe not of course, but uh, you may not be aware of, Genesis 24 happens to be the longest chapter in Genesis, 67 verses. It's a love story. In fact, it's probably the oldest love story ever written down. And it is indeed a bestseller. And so I trust that God would work mightily through this powerful story. Um, So hear now, Genesis 24, verse 1, hear now the word of God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, whom he had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning that we can consider. We're thankful in particular for those who have just gone before this church and testified that they belong to Christ and shall forevermore. What a ministry it is in our own hearts to see Quentin and Rebecca say, I am Jesus's. I belong to him. And we're so thankful um, that we too can say that by your grace. And now even as we come, we can consider your word as you seek to teach us and lead us. We pray in particular this morning, Father, for those who are not yet married, any of the young people here. We pray, Father, that you would speak to them your truths through this passage. There's so much So much information in this world about romance. We pray, Father, that we would look to you, the one who created it, that we might know rightly how to engage in these matters. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps you're familiar with the the story, The Garden, a, a parable, really, 
that details uh, the beauty of a young woman's chastity. Let me read to you some of it. As my horse trotted wearily up the road, I could see the walls of a beautiful garden ahead. Outside the gate was an equally beautiful woman. At the sound of my greeting, she turned and said, Good sir, good morning. I looked at her and then at the garden walls extending out to the right and left. Behind her was the garden gate. I said, I am very thirsty. She smiled, and her smile made me thirstier still, but she said nothing. Is there water there? I asked. There is a stream within my garden. Her statement was simply a statement of fact. There was no invitation at all in it. I asked, may I come in and drink? No, she said. Why is this? Other women have let me drink from their gardens that they tend. I glanced at the fruit-laden branches, which were visible over the top of the garden wall. You have a lovely garden, but those who let me drink had gardens just as beautiful. She laughed at this, and her laugh was merry indeed. I persisted. It seems like a shame for such a garden to go to waste. How does it go to waste? She said, both puzzled and amused. Does any man drink from your stream? No, but no man fouls it either. But is that not a waste? Was not your stream made to quench the thirst of travelers? I'm afraid you're seriously mistaken. It was made to quench thirst, not of travelers, but of the Lord of the garden. Oh, I said, the garden has a Lord. No, she said. Then I don't understand. Are you speaking in riddles? She smiled and said, no, I do not. The garden will one day have a Lord, although it does not yet. When my Lord comes, I will grant to him my garden. But until I do, he is just another traveler. And what do you look for? For I am sure there are many who knock at your gate. At this, she blushed slightly, but looked straight at me. I will not have a Lord who does not have a Lord himself. My Lord must have taken an oath of fealty to the landlord. The landlord? Who is he? He is the owner of all gardens along this road, she said. In order to come into my garden, my Lord must take an oath before the landlord to tend the garden well. He must also swear that he will enter no other garden. I, have ne- I had never heard such words as these before. How long must he stay out of other gardens, I asked. Forever, she said. But what if he is born to travel? Then he is not born for my garden. So that's all? If someone takes an oath before this landlord, you will make him your lord? No. What else then? Well, there are many men who think they can tend my garden well and who would be willing to swear an oath before the landlord saying so. But that that does not mean I share their confidence. I know the extent of my garden. I have knowledge of it that cannot be gained from the road. But no man can share that knowledge until after I have made him my lord and husband. So I must have the measure of the man before It seems like much work. She smiled once again. There is much work. There is also much fruit. So what must a man do? The first thing is to, yes, I know, he must swear to the landlord, but after that, well, he must return to me and ask to see my father. And what would your father say? Well, that depends on the man. At this, she turned and walked slowly back into the garden, pulling the gate closed behind her. I spurned my horse, which began to trot down the road. 
I did not know what to think, but I needed to find this landlord. Awfully quaint, isn't it? Pretty dated, we might say. It speaks of long ago, that day in which the intimate pleasures were reserved and guarded, when a father protected his daughter's chastity. It reminds me of the day, perhaps, when fathers will be asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And they will say, in a sense, her mother and I, for all these years, have shaped her for this man and for this day. We have found this man to be godly and mature. We have found him ready to support her and her future children. And therefore, trusting in the Lord, I give my daughter to be his wife. From now on, he will be her head and she will be his. I wonder, are those days gone? Well, they are rare, aren't they? But I hope they are not absent. In fact, we come to a story that I think would encourage us to embrace such a mindset. This story before us in Genesis 24 is really a story of God's providence as God works through the circumstances and customs of the day. It's a story of faithfulness as God keeps his promises to the very son of promise, Isaac. It's a story that teaches us about prayer. That we are to, to, God is acting in response to the faithful intercessions of his people. That's why I would encourage you, by the way, to come out this Wednesday as we pray for one another. It's a story of love. I mentioned it's the longest story in Genesis. It's a love story. Um, I I've understand that the Hebrews would read this story to their boys in order to instruct them on how to approach marriage. And so we're going to glean a lot of truths from marriage here. But at that time, it, it's important to recognize there's a difference between descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Right? Descriptive passages in the Bible are simply describing what happened. Prescriptive passages are prescribing what you and I are to do. And so we have to be careful with passages like this. For instance, if you're looking for a wife, you do not need ten camels, as we'll see in a moment. Okay? But there are truths in which we can glean that God would have us apply. And truths about prayer, providence, character, and certainly truths about marriage. And so what we're going to do today, what I normally do, uh, as you probably are aware, is I preach a portion of the, the passage explaining it and then applying the theological principles from it. Today what we're going to do instead, we're going to work our way all the way through the story. And then at the end, we're going to glean the truths for marriage for us. And so it begins there in, verse, in scene number one, if you will, the need of a bride. The need of a bride there in verse 1. We read, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but, that, but will go to my country, my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, see Isaac at this time, we know Sarah's now dead, his mom died. We know Isaac is now 40 years old. Okay, so it's time to get married, right? It's probably past time to get married, don't you think? But at least at this point, 40 years old, he needs a bride. And so Abraham, his father, commissions his servant to go find one. We'll, the, we'll see throughout this story, this servant is an amazing man, this unnamed servant. He's a man of devotion, he's believing, he's prayerful, he's industrious, he's an incredible guy. And, and Abraham is very serious about this. In fact, so serious, you notice he makes the servant swear an oath. That's, that's the whole that put your hand under my thigh business. 
So in this culture, when you say, I, listen, I need you to do something for me, you say, but first grab my inner thigh, okay? That's a little different, isn't it? So I, I think I'm, I'm kind of fond of shaking hands, so I think we just should keep with that, all right? And I know some of you after the service, uh, you're going to come and reach for my thigh. So some of you guys, I know who you are, just stay away from me, okay? okay? <laughs> but this is what they're doing. So, they're, so he says, listen, I want you to find... Find a wife, go back home, find a wife. And so he's thinking, of course, wait a second, what if the girl won't come back with me? Should I bring then Isaac out to go meet her? This is the question he has there in verse 5. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Right, I mean, this guy has a very hard job. He's going to go and ask a girl that he just meets to leave her family travel a thousand miles across the desert to marry a man whom she has never met, okay? There's no e-harmony back then, okay? There's not even pictures, right? So come with me to a land. You'll never go back home, most likely. Come to me and marry a man you've never met. Any woman here up for that, right? I mean, that's a pretty tall ask, isn't it, right? It's incredible. He says, well, what, what what if she won't come? And, and Abraham's response to him are the last recorded words of Abraham in Scripture. They're, they're words of faith. Look at what he says in verse eight, 6. Excuse me. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free. From this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. God's called us out of that land. We're not going home. He is to be here now, right? And so he says, God will go before you. God's going to prepare a woman for my son. He has this wonderful faith. Abraham has this faith that God will provide. Of course, God has provided, has he not? the ram in place of Isaac, as we saw just a couple chapters earlier. And now Abraham says he will also provide a wife. But if he doesn't, you're released from your oath. And so Abraham testifies to his faith in God's providence, as you see in verse 9. So the servant put his hand in the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This brings us to scene number two, prayer for a bride. Prayer for a bride. You see, the servant goes off traveling in verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. This will be months of travel. He has this sizable caravan, 10 camels, and you notice a bunch of gifts. That's the dowry, okay? And he travels east to Nahor, or the, literally the land within the river. He comes to the outskirts of that city, And he settles down there at the well, as we see in verse 11. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. So the sun is falling on the horizon. Get the vision. We're outside the city walls. There's the well. Why is he at the well? Well, that's where the women are, right? You want a woman, you go where the women are, okay? And so he says, okay, I'm going there. He gets right to it. And so he's at the well, but the question is, how do you decide which one? Right? There might be 50 young women there. There might be 100 young women out there. How do you, how do you know? 
Well, he could do what we do in our culture. He could start a reality show, right? Who wants to marry a millionaire? And you get 30 women, and you could play with their hearts, and you could get one woman to think that you're really interested in her, when you actually have four other women on the line, you're handing out roses and flowers and all the rest, and crushing women, and and bringing them all over this roller coaster of emotions. So that's one option he could do. He has a different plan, which I'm, I'm more inclined for. He prays. How about that? Verse 12. And he said, O Lord God, my master, uh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now this some have considered to be the first prayer in the Bible. We've had people talk to God, like Abraham's spoken to God a number of times, but this is the first time anyone's talking to God when God is physically absent. In fact, we'll see later in this chapter that he's actually praying at times in his heart. And so we understand that you could pray out loud by yourself. You could even pray in your heart by yourself. And there he is. He's asking God for a sign. Now, not, not a, like a sign like Gideon, you know, the wet fleece in the dry ground business. He's not asking for a miracle, right? He's not even asking for inner revelation. He's not saying, God, let Let the the woman whom you've chosen, when I look at her, let me have a sense of peace. Let me just know she's the one. He's not asking for that. What is he asking for? Well, he's asking that she would demonstrate something of her character. Right? That 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 he he would he's praying, he says, let the woman who, who offers me a drink also what water my camels. Right? Any woman will offer him a drink if he asks. No one's gonna say no. But he what about a woman who goes the second mile? Right? A woman who, who's willing to, to, to give my camel's water. That woman would be kind, hardworking, generous to a stranger. And so he prays, doesn't he, very specifically, very measurably. I don't know, you ever pray like that? It's very interesting, isn't it? So he prays for these things. And while he's praying, we see God is answering his prayer even before he says amen. As you see in verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water on her shoulder. Before he, before he even opens his eyes, before he even says amen, here comes Rebekah, God answering her prayers. I love the story of Hudson Taylor, the, the great uh, pioneering missionary into the inland of China in the 18th century. When he was sailing out to China, there came a, part, uh, a point in that voyage where there was no wind to speak of. And the current was taking the ship for a, a reef that was right under the water. It would tear the ship apart, sinking it there in the ocean. And so the, the captain of the ship comes to Taylor and says, we've done all we can. And Taylor said, no, we haven't. We haven't prayed. And so Taylor and four missionaries prayed briefly. And when he arose from his prayer, he was so convinced that God was going to send wind. He went up to the man who was at the helm and said, you should let down the main sail. The sailor replied, what what good is that? There's no wind. Taylor said, it's about to come. God is sending it. 
Well, the sailor was, you know, a sailor is kind of like a sailor. He wasn't all that convinced. He wasn't really expecting God to work here. And, and he says, listen, um, I'd rather feel wind than hear one that comes by prayer. And right as he said those words, right, the topsail began to flap gently in the breeze. So he looked at the, 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 the sail up there. He looked at Taylor. And he, he said, it's only a cat's paw, right? Just a puff of wind, right? That's nothing. So Taylor went and he loosened the mainsail, tied it down, just seconds later, a strong gale comes, hits that, that sail, and saves them from that reef. And so the lesson that Taylor drew from this, the lesson we should draw from this passage, Taylor writes, Thus did God encourage me before landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect he would honor the name of Jesus Christ and give me the help that each emergency required. This is something very clearly this man believes. And so here she comes. There's Rebecca. She's described in verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. Okay, notice he runs to meet her, right? He's not waiting. There are other, there are other men around, perhaps. The other guys may be on the same mission, so he's just not going to wait for her to come to him. He goes to her. Okay. Hey, can I have a drink? Her response is recorded in verse 18. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they are finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. Now, how many camels does he have? Let's do a little math. Is that okay? He's got 10 camels. How, how much water does it take to fill up a camel? Okay. The same as your SUV, okay? 25 gallons. So you got 10 camels, 25 gallons each. That's 250 gallons. Now, how much does a gallon of water weigh? It weighs eight pounds, okay? So eight pounds, eight times 250 is what? 2,000 pounds. And so this woman literally pulls up a ton of water to feed these camels. A little ton, right? In a three-gallon jar, most likely, she probably makes 80 trips to the well. This would take, most commentators say, over an hour, perhaps several hours for a stranger. How many women here would do something like that? How, How many people today would be willing to do this. You notice if Rebecca's timid, this never works out. If Rebecca's rude, this never works out. She, she'll never attract his attention. And I think what we're learning is that every day in our life, there are things that we have no idea what God is doing and yet have, may have huge implications for the trajectory of the remainder of our days. And so she's out drawing the water, a ton of water. What's the servant doing? He's watching, right? He's just taking it all in. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's trying to learn, is she the one? Is this the one? She might be, because she's already been described what? In verse 16, as both beautiful and chaste. You know, chastity, or I might even say virginity, in our culture, is not a virtue. It's an embarrassment isn't it? 
It's an embarrassment to reach a certain age and still say, I'm chaste or I'm a virgin. That's what our culture says. There's incredible pressure to give that away. Will you please note that God values things differently than our world? God values chastity. And by the way, this woman is attractive. We've already seen very attractive, so there have been opportunities to give into that temptation, and she has refused. Now, I'm thankful that God forgives sin, right? He forgives sexual sin. He forgives all kinds of sin. And so we praise God for that. But here we find she's beautiful. She's chaste. She's strong. She's hardworking. She's respectful. She calls him my Lord. Later on, we'll find she's hospitable. She has amazing courage and faith. She's even nice to camels. I mean, come on. This girl's a keeper, right? And so we have a discovery, scene three, of a bride, a potential bride at least, Right? He's seen that his prayers are answered. He wastes no time. Look what he does, verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 shekels. He starts giving out jewelry. Okay? So, according to the Bible, women like jewelry. Okay? It's right there. Okay? I don't get it. I got a $20 piece of wood on my finger, and that works just fine for me. But ladies, they like, they like jewelry. And so, he's giving out jewelry. By the way, the ring is for her nose. You'll note verse 47. That's right. That's all right for me. Okay? It's a nice nose ring. He puts it in her nose, putting bracelets on her jewelry. This is pretty exciting. Romance going on, right? And now this question. Okay? Here it is. What The last question. This is what we need. What family are you from? Verse 23. She said, please tell me whose daughter are you? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Her response, verse 24, she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. She is, we find out, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Abraham's great niece. And she says, yeah, you may stay with us. Okay, so listen, we're reading this, we read this differently because we read She's beautiful, she's chaste, but she's your cousin, okay? They read, she's beautiful, she's chaste, and she's your cousin, okay? That's what they want. They're excited about this, and so here they are, and they would keep this, you know, distant cousins. They would marry into these relationships. This is what he's looking for. So the servant's prayers have been answered, every one, and what does he do? He bows down right in front of that girl, says, hold on a second, I need to worship, and so he prays once again in verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Okay, he's praying now. This woman is kind, hardworking, beautiful, godly right? She'll talk to you. That's an occasion to praise God. He's saying, thank you, Jesus, for all this, that God's providence is working. Do you notice this? No sea's been parted. No fire's fallen down from the sky. Just God working through the normal events of a normal day. Please understand, according to Scripture, there's no such thing as luck, chance, fate, We believe in providence. William Temple said, 
the more I pray, the more coincidences happen, right? That this man's trusting God's control. He really believes God answers prayer. God's hand is hidden, but God is working in his life, and I believe in our lives, in powerful ways. Well, Rebecca's watching him worship, and she's listening, right? She's listening to this man worship, and she hears him mention her famous great-uncle Abraham. And so she runs off to tell her parents, as we saw there in verse 28, which is good advice for all you young ladies. Listen, even young men. If a man, if a young man's talking to you, right, and he's giving you jewelry, okay, you run home and tell mama and daddy, okay? Right? right? No, listen, all joking aside, if you are, you are approaching a romantic relationship and you can't tell your parents, you think, I... I'm going to keep this to myself. That's a warning sign. Right? That's, that's a danger sign. God's giving you parents, giving you godly counsel that they might help you navigate these realities. She runs home and says, Daddy, Mama, um, this man is, is uh, from Uncle Abraham. He's giving me jewelry. And outruns, interestingly enough, her brother. Look at this, verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, right? Now, we know Laban, don't we? We'll see him later on in this book. Laban ran out towards the man at the uh, spring. And as soon as he saw the ring uh, and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he heard the words of Rebecca. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. All right, so the brother runs out. He takes the lead. Perhaps, we don't know, his dad is too old. Her dad is Bethuel. We'll see him later in the story. But out comes his brother running to him because he wants to know who, who's putting bracelets on my sister's arm. Okay? And that's the kind of brothers you want to be, young men. Okay? You, you don't, brothers, listen, you want to be one who cares about your sister and her well-being. You're looking out for her. Right? Because we, we men, we know what men are like. We know what men will do. We ought to protect the women that God has put in our lives. That's your job, brothers. You say, well, what about the dad? Well, yeah, that's the dad's job too, right? You load the shotgun while dad goes out and talks to him, okay? okay? Right? So, so, uh, so Laban's running out there, okay? Now, Laban might have ulterior motives. We don't know. He's a pretty greedy guy, we'll find out, right? And so he sees jewelry, and there's Mr. Bling Bling out there who's given out costly things. And so come on over to my house, he says in verse 31. He, came, uh, he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house for a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Which leads us to scene number four, the proposal to the bride. Look what we see there in verse 33. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak. So they, they're there, there's dinner, they put food in front of him, he won't touch it until he makes the proposal. And what he does from verses 34 through 49 is he explains everything that's happened. Now what he says is pretty much everything we just read, and I, I see the clock, and so we're just going to skip that. Okay? But it's just a rehearsing of all that's happened. And what he's trying to do is he's arguing to Rebecca's family do you see how God has led me to this point, right? God's done this, God's done that. God, I prayed this, she watered the camels, right? And then I said, what family are you from? And you're from this family. God is, he's saying, God is clearly orchestrating this. 
showing that this is God's plan. And so finally, in verse 49, he pops the question on behalf of Isaac, right? Now then, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, that, that's not the best proposal, okay? He pretty much says, are you going to be godly and say yes, right? Or evil and say no, okay? That's not what you want to do, but that's what he does. I mean, I don't know. That's what he comes out with. That's the best he's got. And so it's decision time, right? What, what will they do? Scene five, the decision of the bride. How is he going to manage this? Look in verse 50. The, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. In other words, we can see clearly this is God's hand bringing you to our sister, our daughter, Rebecca. Behold, verse 51, Rebecca is before before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So both father and brothers agree. Say, yeah, you could take her to be married. Well, we say, what about Rebecca? Someone might want to ask her. Of course, this is what we understand to be arranged marriages. And for this culture, and by the way, many other cultures even today, the family is more important than the individual. And so when you consider marriage, you're not just considering the individual's needs, you're considering the family's needs. Now, our culture is the exact opposite. In our culture, the individual... His needs are, are elevated over the family's needs. And that's just pervasive in our culture. You just hear the language. you got to be true to yourself. you got to do what you want to do. I, no one's going to tell me what to do. And all that kind of, that's what we, it's all about the individual. I've got to follow my dreams, right? You're going to be, it's about you, okay? Uh, and, and by the way, that's, that invaded my heart. I mean, I, when, I, when I went to, to school or when I, when I moved and took a job, I never once thought about my family, my parents, my brothers. I never thought, I just, it was about me. Where do I want to work? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go to school? And that's what we have. And I think, by the way, some good has come from that in our culture, but perhaps some harm as well. And so they, they, they say, listen, you, 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 she'll marry you. And his response, you could guess, all right? She's going to take, she says yes, or they say yes for her. He responds by doing what? By praying. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. Okay, so there's more jewelry. There's the bride price or the dowry being given to the mother and to the brother there. Um, so pain, pain, blessing the family as they lose their daughter, they receive this. Okay, so everything's going great, isn't it? This is wonderful. But Laban and Rebecca's mother would like a delay. This is all going a little too fast. Can we just put a pause on this, verse 54? And he, uh, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Yeah, and he and, and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When, the, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master, her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go, right? Can she please just say goodbye? She may never come home. Interestingly, the servant refuses, verse 56. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go 
to my master. Now, we're not sure why he says, no, we have to go now. You think it would be courteous, right? Yeah, you could have 10 days or whatever you need to wrap up your affairs and say goodbye. Maybe the servant can see Laban's true heart. Maybe he has insight and think, hey, it's a bad idea to hang around this guy. He's always scheming. He always has ulterior motives. And so he says, no, um, I think we need to go as soon as possible. So we're in a bit of stalemate. Family says, pause. Servant says, time to go. So how do we break it? We go to Rebecca. Okay, let's ask Rebecca. Verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Okay, she's never left home. She won't return. She's going to travel for weeks across a thousand miles of desert sand just with a man she just met to marry a man she's never met. Will she go? Her answer is decisive, verse 58. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. I will go. And I think this is an even greater step of faith than Abraham took in Genesis 12. Abraham went with his wife, nephew. He had things. Rebecca is leaving everything. she's in a sense saying, I believe the will of God. I believe I'm part of his covenantal promises to bless the world. I'm going to go. In addition to all else, we see this is a woman of faith. This is a wife Isaac's going to need. And so they send her off with their blessings, showing the confidence that God is going to work in his covenant. Verse 59, so they sent Rebekah away, their sister and their nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Off they go. Right? And it leads us to, of course, the last scene, the marriage of the bride. The marriage of the bride. Finally, Isaac emerges in this whole story there in verse 62. Now Isaac returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards the evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Right? So this is the final scene. The camera kind of focuses in on Isaac. He's out meditating in the evening field, giving us a glimpse of Isaac's character and commitment to God. And Rebecca, she sees him. Verse 64. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted the camel. This is where you cue the music, right? The camera's focusing in on Isaac, and then focusing on Rebecca as they're gazing at each other across this field. She has spent weeks, months, talking to this servant about her future husband, right? And, And she's thinking, is that the one I'm about to wed? She asked the question in verse 65 and said to the servant, who is that man? Walking in the field to meet us, the servant said, it is my master, my master. I kind of like the sound of that, don't you? I I need a servant, you know, my master. I think that's why we should have interns, don't you think? That would be a good, (laughs) good kind of phrase. It's my master. That works for me. And so the servant says, there's my master. And, and, And so what does she do? Look at this. Look at this. Read on verse 65. She took her veil and covered herself. She covered herself. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't you supposed to uncover yourself if you're trying to woo the attention of a young man? Mm-hmm. Not Rebecca. 
This man's going to love me for the right reason, she thinks. Now the journey's over. The servant recounts to Isaac all the amazing details, verse 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, right? I'm sure there was a good laugh about Rebecca watering all those camels and sweating and running back and forth. And, 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 and that she's beautiful and all that God's doing. And so he recounts how God had prospered him. And then finally we come to the last verse, the wedding, which I'm afraid is somewhat anticlimactic, isn't it? There in verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Uh, you notice the marriage, is, the celebrations passed over. I'm sure they must have had one. Remember, Isaac turned three. There was this great feast. I'm sure at this wedding of the son of promise, there was a feast. But the focus here, of course, is that Rebecca has taken Sarah's place. Sarah's place in the tribe, now that Sarah's dead. Now Rebecca has become the matriarch. And Sarah's place in Isaac's heart. And then lastly, you note there in verse 67, he says he married her and, what? He loved her. This is the first reference to marital love in the Bible. He loved her. You notice what, what we see is that Bible's teaching, you should love the one you marry. Right? Love the one you marry. If I could give you in about 10 minutes, 10 principles in which we can glean from this passage. Principle number one, love the one you marry. You say, no, 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 you marry the one you love. Of course you do, right? But you also need to love the one you marry, love the one you choose. Because we think about love as the tide. It kind of rolls in, then it rolls out, right? I was in love, but now I fell out of love, and now I love someone else. What can I do? I've had a number of men tell me in marital counseling that I want a divorce because I don't love her anymore. Well, the Bible says, Ephesians 5.25, as Mark read for us this morning, husbands do what? Love your wives. That's a command. That's God's command. Husbands are to love your wives. So if you are not loving your wife, that's disobeying a command of God. That's a sin. The solution to the sin of not loving your wife is not the sin of divorce. You don't solve one sin by doing another sin. You solve the sin by repenting. Okay? And so if you don't love your wife, well, start obeying God and start loving your wife. Say, that's hard. Okay, it might be, right? It, that requires work. Okay, yeah, marriage requires work, in case you didn't know. This is not easy. And you have to work to love one another. I mean, pray for my, can you imagine being married to me? Right? Every argument turns into a sermon, okay? And as you know by now, they're not short, okay? So pray for Allegra. Love the one you marry. Number two, pray for your spouse. There's prayer everywhere. He's praying all the time. Pray, pray, pray for yourself that you will be a fitting husband or wife, right? Pray for your kids. Pray for your kids' future spouses. Pray for your grandchildren, right? Especially those of you who've been married for a while. You know how important marriage is. Pray for the people God has put in your life, that God would even be guiding them now, that in their marriage. Number three, Christians are to marry only Christians, right? The, you see the, the instruction when he says, you don't take a wife for my son from the people of Canaan among whom I live. Why not? Why can't Isaac marry a Canaanite? Is this some racial bias? 
Okay? We're going to preach one more sermon in Genesis, then we're going to go to the book of Zephaniah. I'm tired of you all asking, when are you going to preach Zephaniah? Okay, so uh, we're, we're, we're going to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, I have found out, Zephaniah is a biracial Jew. Okay? Moses, who wrote this book, married a black woman. Okay? And in fact, it upset his bigoted sister Miriam that she got so mad that he married out of his race. God gave Miriam leprosy, in other words, making her whiter than she wanted to be. Right? It says very clearly God gave her leprosy, making her whiter than snow. This has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with faith. Okay? The Canaanites were idol worshipers and Abraham wanted his son, the son of promise, to marry within the faith. And I trust he has shared his faith with his family before he left the land of Ur. Right? And, and, and God has told him, remember Genesis 15, Abraham, you are to raise your children to know me. And Abraham's children are to raise their children to know him. And to raise children to know and follow God is exceedingly difficult, though not impossible, when both parents don't share the faith. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 7, you are free to marry whoever you want, but only in the Lord. Right? It's one biblical requirement for Christians to marry, and you are to marry a Christian. And you can imagine, Isaac is 40 years old, you can imagine 20-year-old Isaac bringing home these this Canaanite girl said, Dad, man, she's got these beautiful brown eyes, and man, I just, you know, and Abraham's saying, no, no, okay? The Bible tells us that charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. May I just encourage all of you who are yet to be married to not get romantically involved with a non-Christian. Number four, marriage is for adults, Right? This is not something children do. Isaac, of course, is 40, but you have to grow up in order to be married. Right? You have to take responsibility. Okay? You can't say, you know, Mom, can you buy more cereal? My fiance's coming over. Okay? That that's, doesn't work. You have to be on your own, be a man, men marry. Number five, men find a wife, women are given in marriage. Very antiquated, I know, but I think it's biblical. The man takes the initiative. The wife is protected by the dad she is given, by the family she's given. And the dad says, I approve and I will let her go. That's why we still in marriage. We still have the dad give her away. That's his approval, right? Women, young ladies, if you have to chase a man, if he's not willing to chase you, he is not willing to work hard to keep you, okay? And he's not worth your time, okay? Number six, potential Marriages require godly counsel. Godly counsel. How many people are involved in this decision? Okay. And I'm not saying we go back to this system. But when you're going to make the most important decision in your life, some, so for some reason in our, in our world, we, we just isolate ourselves. We get no input from our parents, no input from those who wise counsel God's put in our life. We, we say, you know, I know what's best for me. My heart knows what's best for me. No, your heart's an idiot, okay? Your heart's all hopped up on hormones and pheromones and all the rest, endorphins, right? You don't know. And so you say, okay, well, I'm going to ask my friends, right? Do you think she's right for me? Do you think he's right for me? Your friends don't know either, right? They, they have no more wisdom than you do, right? 
you need people in your life who have been and are happily married. Start with mom and dad, hopefully, right? Or other people. You need, that's why, one of the, plug for community groups. Why you singles need to be involved in community groups that are not just filled with singles. And that you let yourself be known. You need help. You need accountability. You need referees blowing their whistle. Illegal use of the hands, right? Go back, you know, 10 yards, okay? You need people like that. Number seven, dads protect your children's purity. You got daughter, dad, brothers, dad's shotgun, and the young man, okay? That, God put that there for a reason. So listen, dads, some guy pulls up and honks the horn. You get your shotgun, and you go out and say, may I help you? And you say, well, yeah, I'm here for your daughter. And you say, okay, so you're going to honk your horn like you're whistling for a dog? No, I don't think so. Come again next month, and you could try again, okay? You are there to protect her. And dads, you need to be ready to say no. No, it's not a good choice. I'm not, I'm saying no, I'm your father. That's not going to happen. Will she be mad? Yeah. Will he be sad? Yeah. But that is why God has given them a father. Okay. Number eight, prioritize character. I mean, it's obvious from this story that he's looking for a woman of noble character. He observes her behavior before he even initiates, right? So he wants to see why. Listen, if she'll feed the camels, she'll feed the kids, okay? And so she's a good, godly woman. Look at her. First Peter 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of jewelry and the fine clothes. Instead, it should, should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is a great worth in God's sight. You, we have to prioritize character. That is the unfading beauty. Okay? That's what God says. Listen, physical beauty, that's going to fade. But the character will not. It'll only grow more beautiful. You say, well, how can I tell their character? How can I tell her character? How can I tell his character? By watching how they treat others. Okay? You, you don't see their character and how they treat you. When you're dating, they're like a used car salesman. Okay? They hide all the defects. The defects. Right? You get a rattle in the engine, they say, what? Let's turn on the radio. Okay? You, what you want to see is how they serve each other. How do they serve their church? How does he treat his mom? Because how he treats his mom is how he will treat you. How does he treat his sisters? That's how he's going to treat you. And, of course, you see this emphasis here on chastity, don't you? Listen, if someone can't control themselves with you, How's he going to control himself when he's on a business trip? How's he going to control himself when he's alone in front of a computer? So I want to encourage you. Bible's, listen, the Bible is very clear. And, and maybe, I don't know if I need to say it. I'm going to say it anyways. Sex is for marriage. It's not for dating. It's not for engagement. It's not for a week before the wedding. It's for marriage. And so you should be very careful. Let me encourage you. If you're a believer in Christ... You know, you, you, your family, you can make up your own rules, but not, I would suggest, even when I was a youth pastor, I would say nothing below the chin, nothing longer than five seconds, and you're never laying down together, okay? That just seems wise to me. The Bible says in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. 
You ought to be careful. Number nine, beware of recreational dating. We have this idea in our culture that you have two people nowhere near marriageable age, not interested in marriage at all, who are going to spend lots of time together in a romantic relationship simply because it's fun. Parents will have no role in this, right? The daughter just drives off with the young man that you don't know, and the parents are just left, left home praying. God, will you? I just pray that she's strong enough, he's strong enough to resist temptation. Listen, that model, that, that model leads to sexual immorality. There's constant pressure. There's no accountability. It leads to emotional heartbreak, right? Because you plan to have fun, but all of a sudden your heart's entwined, and then they break it off. It leads to divorce training because you find one that thrills you, you're in a relationship, then they disappoint you, which they will, and you move on, right? And what are you learning from this? You're learning how to end relationships. You get real good at ending relationships. It's not a problem. You're, you're, you're learning that your happiness depends upon finding the right person. And so if you're not happy, it's clear you're not with the right person, right? And then it, your entire focus on yourself. Not how you can serve and give and seek to bless other people, but the focus on yourself. So beware of recreational dating. You say, okay, Stephen, what's the alternative? And I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, there's all sorts of models, to be honest. I think this is very difficult. I found my wife through recreational dating. I'm not saying God doesn't bless that. But it is dangerous. And it led us into many, many um, minefields, if you will. I, I would just say, you, you should not be in a relationship in, in, if your destination is not marriage. There's no point. Right? If that's not the goal. And then you just have to have people involved, certainly your family involved. Let me just say lastly, number 10, marriage is good. I only say this because some of you come from broken homes. Some of you have been around really bad marriages. I've, I'll take it from a man who's been happily married for 21 years. Marriage is incredible. And it's, a, it's, it's God's plan. It's God created this. And God is very interested in your marriage. He's very interested in future marriages. And he teaches us. In fact, you know why? Because God teaches us in marriage. He teaches us about his love for us and his commitment to us. Let me say lastly, if you could just give me your attention for three minutes. The book of Genesis, in fact, the Bible, is really about a story of God pursuing what? A bride. A people. The New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ. And God is seeking after a bride. Isn't it interesting that Isaac is married only after he is virtually sacrificed? And then, as the Bible, uh, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, raised. So you have the only son who is, if you will, just about sacrificed, and then raised from that point, and then after that, he what? Right after that, he gets a wife. In fact, is it not interesting that it is the father who sends the servant to secure a bride for the son? The servant finds her, initiates the relationship, compels her to come with him that she may be wed to the son who is absent in a foreign land. And so the, the, the bride and the servant travel together for weeks through this dry desert. And one day, the servant brings her 
to the Son that she may become his. Don't you see that's our story? Don't you see this is the gospel? Is it not true that the Father has sent his Spirit only after the sacrifice and resurrection of the Son to do what? To secure for the Son a bride. And now you and I travel together with the Spirit of God, the Spirit and the Bride of Christ, as he prepares us one day that we might meet the Son face to face in a land that we call the promised land. And there when we do, what happens? The Bible calls it the wedding of the Lamb. This is our story. This is the gospel. There is only one difference that I can find. Is that the servant, or if you will, the spirit, didn't find us Rebecca's honorable and chaste. Didn't find us worthy and virtuous. Instead, he found us, as the Bible calls us, as ones who have sold ourselves to others. Right? We, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't impress God. He didn't look down on us. The Spirit didn't look and say, I really want him on my team. She would make a great follower of the Son. No, our virtue didn't win his affection. He loved us even in the midst of our filth and our sin. He pursued us when we were running the other way. And he runs us down. The Spirit runs us down, doesn't he? And he says, may I take you to the Son? Will you go with me? What would you say to him? What have you said to him? Have you not said what Rebecca said long ago? Have you not said what Quentin and our Rebecca said even today? I will go. I will go with you. Take me to the Son that I may be his. And then even now, we're on this journey with his spirit, knowing one day the journey will be over. He'll, you'll be presented before him. And as Mark read for us from Ephesians 5, one day you'll be presented how? Without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And there, my Christian brothers and sisters, you and I shall live in this land in the land of the promise, with the Son forever. And I tell you, based upon the word of God, and he will love you. Our Father, we are so thankful for the work of Christ, that he has died for our sins and rose from the dead, and now the Spirit has come to get us. He's bringing us home even today. We praise you, Father that you would come after ones who are not chaste, ones who are full of rebellion, and yet do a great work of redemption, that you would indeed forgive us of all our sins. We pray for those here today that perhaps have not yet yielded their life to you. We pray that you would work in their hearts, that, they would say, that you would show them that they have two options. They could stand before a holy God in their own work, or they could stand before a holy God in the work of the righteous Son of God, and that you would even whisper in their hearts through your Spirit, even now, will you come? Will you come with me that I might bring you to the Son? Father, will you work and save the lost? And we pray for all those here in particular who are not yet married and one day will be. 
We ask that you would help them navigate this time in their life. And that, Father, their commitment above all things will be to bring you honor and to seek after the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.